Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Princess and the Tin Box" by James Thurber. This is first published in the New Yorker for September 29th, 1945. I think I probably read this a um, couple dozen years ago, or maybe a dozen years ago, uh, as a student story. Somebody, you know, assigned it as a story for their students, and I'm like, this story is awesome! <laughs> and I, I, I think I had heard or read some James Thurber independently but i hadn't heard this one and um he's way before my time eric (laughs) like you must have you must have known a lot more about him than i did growing up given oh absolutely well i don't know i don't know what you knew but indeed when i was growing up not only did i read thurber you know, as he was actually publishing, but um, there was a TV show uh, based on him, um, and, and that I saw. I mean, everybody knew who James Thurber was, and the Secret Life of Walter Mitty was one of the most famous short stories in America, mm-hmm. and undoubtedly his most famous short story. But uh, you had you heard of this one, or do you remember it from before I, I submitted I, it? I do not remember this one at all. And I have read four or five collections of his work. Um, so I may indeed have read this, but there's it, it, so much of it is uh, of high quality. And, well, when we read it, this everyone will understand. There is a, a wry and uh, tolerant, but nonetheless cutting, acerbic tone to, uh, to Thurber. That you find in pretty much all of his work, not only the uh, the prose, but also his marvelous cartoons. Uh, so I may well have read this, but it slipped in among a hundred others. Mm-hmm. But it's well worth individual attention. It's a terrific story, as are the hundred others. Uh, I think I think I probably thinking about it a little more. I think I probably encountered this. Um, it's probably in the early 90s there was like a uh brief trend to release books like uh i think rocky and bullwinkle had uh some two fractured fairy tales so people retelling famous um you know public domain folk tales sort of thing and i think this might have got shoved in or not this one, but a, a, a few of the of these other fairy tales for our time may have got shoved in as uh, supplements to new material, and maybe that's where I first encountered James Thurber, and I did find him sort of a a voice different from the others. You know, <laughs> a lot of the uh, the retelling of fairy tales is done with. Um, you know what? Why don't Why don't we hear it first? But, sure. But the the genre of of retelling tales uh, has its own uh, important aspects. So this will be an example of it, if that's all right with mm-hmm. you. Do you want to say anything about Thurber's himself or not? I actually don't know that much about him. Um, he had uh, a, a fairly long career uh, writing in The New Yorker, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty is uh, just prior to World War II for the United States, and this one comes out just 
at the end. So um, he was writing well before that, I believe, and and into the fifties, quite deep, I think. Yeah, he I died think so. in in sixty one. So it, it, I think it it was like um, my mom's generation barely would have seen it, you know. Mm. But uh, revivals happen. I don't know. Well, and some things never die. Um, Books of his cartoons have been impress, impress, as far as I know, pretty much continuously. I could be wrong, but it seems to me I can always find them in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. You remember when there used to be bookstores? I do. <laughs> so this is a fairy tale from our time. Shall I read it? Please do. The Princess and the Tin Box. Once upon a time, in a far country, there lived a king whose daughter was the prettiest princess in the world. Her eyes were like the cornflower, her hair was sweeter than the hyacinth, and her throat made the swan look dusty. From the time she was a year old, the princess had been showered with presents. Her nursery looked like Cartier's window. Her toys were all made of gold or platinum or diamonds or emeralds. She was not permitted to have wooden blocks or china dolls or rubber dogs or linen books because such materials were considered cheap for the daughter of a king. When she was seven, she was allowed to attend the wedding of her brother and throw real pearls at the bride instead of rice. Only the nightingale with his lyre of gold was permitted to sing for the princess. The common blackbird with his boxwood flute was kept out of the palace grounds. She walked in silver and semite slippers to a sapphire and topaz bathroom and slept in an ivory bed inlaid with rubies. On the day the princess was 18, the king sent a royal ambassador to the courts of five neighboring kingdoms to announce that he would give his daughter's hand in marriage to the prince who brought her the gift she liked the most. The first prince to arrive at the palace rode a swift white stallion and laid at the feet of the princess an enormous apple made of solid gold, which he had taken from a dragon who had guarded it for a thousand years. It was placed on a long ebony table set up to hold the gifts of the princess's suitors. The second prince, who came on a gray charger, brought her a nightingale made of a thousand diamonds, and it was placed beside the golden apple. The third prince, riding on a black horse, carried a great jewel box made of platinum and sapphires, and it was placed next to the diamond nightingale. The fourth prince, astride a fiery yellow horse, gave the princess a gigantic heart made of rubies and pierced by an emerald arrow. It was placed next to the platinum and sapphire jewel box. Now, the fifth prince was the strongest and handsomest of all the suitors, but he was the son of a poor king whose realm had been overrun by mice and locusts and wizards and mining engineers, so that there was nothing much of value left in it. He came plodding up to the palace of the princess on a plow horse, and he brought her a small tin box filled with mica and feldspar and horn blend, which he had picked up on the way. The other princes roared with disdainful laughter when they saw the tawdry gift the fifth prince had brought to the princess. 
But she examined it with great interest and squealed with delight for all her life. She had been glutted with precious stones and priceless metals, but she had never seen tin before or mica or feldspar or hornblende. The tin box was placed next to the ruby heart pierced with an emerald arrow. Now, said the king to his daughter, you must select the gift you like best and marry the prince that brought it. The princess smiled and walked up to the table and picked up the present she liked the most. It was the platinum and sapphire jewel box, the gift of the third prince. The way I figure it, she said, is this. It is a very large and expensive box, and when I am married, I will meet many admirers who will give me precious gems with which to fill it to the top. Therefore, it is the most valuable of all the gifts my suitors have brought me, and I like it the best. The princess married the third prince that very day in the midst of great merriment and high revelry. More than a 100,000 pearls were thrown at her, and she loved it. Moral? All those who thought the princess was going to select the tin box filled with worthless stones instead of one of the other gifts will kindly stay after class and write 100 times on the blackboard, I would rather have a hunk of aluminum silicate than a diamond necklace. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I believe when I first encountered this, it had that moral in it, and I was like, Wait a second. Is that is that part of the story, or is that like some person afterwards adding it in? Well, in this version, the original, I think it's very clear that it's part of the story. Agreed. Um, now, I, I I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure, but I'm not sure that when you see these um, famous fables from uh, ancient Greece and folk tales and they add in a moral i think that most of the time that's added in um and not always yeah i uh, mean in fact the, the first really famous collection of handmade fairy tales was Charles perot's 1697 collection and indeed at the end of each story he has a moral i mean it says moral right and then he includes it. So there, there is a tradition of actually writing the morals. Uh, Aesop's fables are always presented with morals since Aesop is in a semi-mythical figure. It's right. hard to know. But from the first time they were written down, they also had morals. Yeah, I was thinking about Aesop, right? Especially um, the, the stories like there's the, the fox and the grapes, right? Right. <laughs> and I remember reading the morals and most of the time disagreeing with with them. Um, and of course, that's kind of what we're doing here, too, with that moral. We are. Um, but I think it really points to the fact that this whole story is designed to give, a, give us the wrong answer. But that's not because of what James Thurber did. He's just aware of these folk tales that tell of, you know, young foolish men who don't have the goods, but somehow managed to win the princess, right? Now, in mm -hmm. this case, he's, he's literally a prince, but he's suffered 
<laughs> because his kingdom was overrun by mice, locusts, wizards, and mining engineers. <laughs> and we should know. We should know from the very beginning, right? Um, her nursery looked like Cartier's window. Um, this is not something you find in, <laughs> in medieval literature, right? Cartier's window is something you find in, uh, I don't know, New York. Some, exactly. Some uh, what, what's the shopping street in New York? Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue, right? Which, in fact, is where Cartier is. Right in New York. So, um, and we're reading this in the New Yorker, so we should know better. But then again, there it is at the title. It's got a. It's got the title of the story, but it's also got the fairy tales for our time. <laughs> a lesson well, the, 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 to be learned is the different. title. It, well, yeah, when we I think we need to discuss what that lesson is. Part of the lesson you're pointing to right away, it, it, there are a set of conventions for fairy tales. Um, and they begin conventionally. This isn't true for the Grimm brothers, in fact. But one thinks of them as beginning once upon a time. You hear that mm-hmm. phrase and you know you're in a fairy tale world. And certain things happen and there are certain expectations and there are gender divisions and talking animals and all sorts mm-hmm. of other stuff. And, and you know, the... It comes out okay for the protagonist, always. Yep. And in that sense, this is one of those fairy tales because it comes out okay for the protagonist. That is, the protagonist has learned that expensive stuff is good, and so she's able to take the most the judgment of what's the most expensive, and she gets it. So it all works out well for her. What is terrific about this is that it plays with the conventions of fairy tales to get us to to think, well, wait a minute, should we be accepting this? And the first time that becomes really obvious is just what you pointed to. Her nursery looked like Cartier's window. Mm -hmm. You don't get Cartier's window. That's like saying the king was in the counting house counting all his money and entering the results in his double entry bookkeeping uh, journal. You know, you just, that's, that's a different world than the one that comes in with Once Upon a Time. What I love about this story is that it not only gives us pretty clear signals like Cartier's window and the mining engineers, mm-hmm. but it it encourages us, I think, certainly on a rereading, to understand that we don't want this fairy tale world. I mean, when you think about it, all her toys were made of gold and mm-hmm. platinum or emeralds and so on. They threw pearls at the brother. Um, she slept in a, she uh, walked in silver and samite slippers. I love all the sibilants mm-hmm. mm-hmm. to a sapphire and topaz bathroom and slept in an ivory bed inlaid with rubies. The, that's hard, you know? Mm-hmm. That's got to be hard. The title is The Princess and the Tin Box. Clearly, it's a reference to The Princess and the Pea. The Princess and the Pea is one in which the princess winds up serve, marrying the right guy because um, he is able to understand how to deal with her extraordinary sensitivity. Mm-hmm. That, with many mattresses, still a pea underneath the mattress, um, she'll feel it. That makes her wonderful. She gets the prince. That story, The Princess and the Pea, is not a traditional story. It is not something that's come down to us from Aesop, the ancients, or even the Grimm brothers. 
It is a whole cloth creation by Hans Christian Andersen. Hmm. Now, it's true that Andersen's fairy tales, which we all know and love, and there, there are many, uh, The Ugly Duckling is another of his, um, Andersen's fairy tales follow the structure and the expectations of the genre of fairy tale. But in fact, they are not oral tales. It's interesting, in, in English and in most languages, we don't make a distinction between fairy tales and folk tales. We think of them all um, as the same genre. And some of them we think of as having come up through the oral transmission and so on. And others we know are perhaps created by artists who are known. But in Danish, which in fact is the native language of Hans Christian Andersen, they actually make a distinction between folk tales and fairy tales. And folk tales are the ones like Aesop and uh, Cinderella, which come up to us through the sieve of, of history. And the fairy tales are the ones that are where we know the author. Mm-hmm. And they actually make that distinction in Danish. I don't know that Thurber knew about that. But he does know that fairy tales, when you really look at them in today's context, pretty damn silly. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, can't, I, I was thinking a lot about a, a, a great story by Isaac Asimov. I don't know if you know this one. It's called Someday. Um, he has a lot of these story, stories of children. I, I was just thinking about how rare it is to have children as the main characters of of, uh, of science fiction stories. is pretty rare, uh, you know, for uh, science fiction stories for adults. Someday is about a a robot that has uh, been disused and left in the basement of a uh, a house. But the kids are bored and they go down and they turn it on because. You know, even though it's outmoded, it's still it still it still works, and it's all they have. They're bored, and this is a machine where you just you know you turn it on, you press some buttons, and uh, it will generate a fairy tale for you. Um, in that particular one, mm-hmm. uh, someday um, they uh, they decide they they start listening to a story, and his kid's kind of embarrassed when his friend wants to see it. But his friend's a mathematician, and uh, he's studying. He's going to go to university, and nobody reads anymore. But he, they've got some books in the attic, um, and he knows how to read. And they decide to update it, <laughs> so they mm-hmm. they change the the vocabulary, uh, all about princesses and knights and uh, castles, and add in spaceships and uh, computers and engineers. And uh, at the end of the story, the um, they uh, start playing it, um, and it, it's just exactly the same thing. It's just sort of ridiculous plots, but with now added spaceships and uh, laser guns instead of arrows and uh, you know carts. <laughs> and Gee, uh, I can't imagine a fairy tale set in space. That would be like yeah, you know, I don't know, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so uh, at the end. Um, it has this, it says, um, yet through it all, the little computer learned. So the computer has been, um, uh, left in the basement of the house. Uh, yet through it all, they're ignoring it now. 
through it all, the little computer learned that in the world there existed great many computers of all sorts, great numbers of them. Some were bards, that's the name of this kind of computer, like himself. But some ran factories and ran farms. Some organized population and some analyzed all kinds of data. Many were very powerful and very wise, much more powerful and wise than the step people who were so cruel to the little computer. And the little computer knew then that computers would always grow wiser and more powerful until someday, someday, but a valve must finally have stuck in the bard's aging and corroding vitals, for as it waited alone in the darkening room through the evening, it could only whisper over and over again, someday, someday, someday. <laughs> so... uh it is completely different approach. Um, I, I'm not really good with these terms, but you might be. Um, is this a postmodern story? This uh, the princess and the tin box? Because I don't think I don't think someday is. No, and I don't think this is either. What 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 is I, I don't what, think so. what, what why, why am I thinking that? Can you explain? Well, uh, uh, postmodernism. Um, is typically associated with an ironic attitude about the art that that comes before it. It looks at modernism and it looks at modernism ironically. Mm-hmm. And in as much as this is looking at the prior art, in this case, Hans Christian Andersen and the, mm-hmm. the wider background of folk tales, fairy tales, um, and, and doing it ironically – um, in fact, breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. and talking directly to the reader in the moral, um, it, it feels postmodern. It's got that sort of tone to it. But I don't I don't think of this as uh, as really uh, changing the world in a way, um, because this is so clearly saying here's a fairy tale and a modern version of it, as opposed to early postmodernists like Kafka, who fully commit to that world Mm. um, and are making ironic, perhaps, or at least critical comments about us. But so I think it's tone here, but Mm -hmm. that's a definitional issue. And I'm not, I don't know that it's, we ought to pursue that far. What I would want to pursue though, is the general question. Why do people use pre-existing stories as the basis for their stories. Mm-hmm. And in fact, why do they, and, and I mean that um, not just so that, I mean, sometimes they use them as by using the Tempest as the background for Forbidden Planet. Right. They use it because it helps them think through their own narrative uh, mm-hmm. problems. And many readers or viewers in the case of that movie won't get it. Right. And it doesn't matter. But in the cases where you're supposed to get it, um, that's, that's, that raises another question. In my experience, the retelling of fairy tales is always used to make a simple point. Why? Fairy tales, because they are nominally for children and because they are set in an idealized world where we don't have to worry about nuance, are able to promulgate simple morals. Uh, you, uh, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have a realistic novel that ended with, and so I will never go into the woods again. 
Right. right. I mean, that's right. But a fairy tale you can do that with. Right. It is an idealized world, not necessarily ideal, wonderful, but, you know, it's, it's platonic ideals. You don't have tweed and uh, mud color here. You know, you've got silver and gold and black mm-hmm. and white and red as blood. You've got these colors and you don't have just any old stuff. You've got platinum and uh, and and diamonds. Pearls. Uh, yep. So pearls. Exactly. So it's an idealized world. Uh, that is susceptible to morals. So when people take this and reuse it, what you wind up is the form justifies our acceptance of that moral critique. If we thought about the critique, we might reject it. Um, But at least for the moment of coming to the end of the story, we sort of embrace it for a bit. Mm -hmm. We at least consider it. And so there, there, there was a big... Uh, movement in the time you're talking about of retelling of fairy tales from a feminist viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angela Carter's uh, Red, is, Red is Blood um, is a collection of uh, Grimm's tales, uh, Grimmer than, I forget the title, I'm sorry, but it's it's Carter. Um, and it, it they are from a feminist viewpoint, you know, look what's happened to those women. And in fact, the moral of each of those stories is our previous idealization of women does a disservice to women. So it's a strong feminist use of making a powerful argument that isn't supported by subtlety, but that's part of what makes it fun. And so as I look at this, I ask, well, okay, what is, what is the simple moral here? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we read the moral, right, and she loved it, um, what we what we recognize is that the shared world, our world, the world that you and I, you know, both go to the grocery store in, um, that shared world is definitely not represented by the fairy tale world. Cartier's and the mining engineer, absolutely. And when the princess finally speaks. Her language is not the language of fairy tales. Right. The way I figure it, she said, figuring it. She's doing a calculation. She's not supposed to do a calculation. Right. She's supposed to fall for the handsomest, strongest man. Even though he's poor. Exactly. Because, you know, money doesn't matter when you say he's a rich king or he's a poor man. Mm -hmm. You don't say this is his bank balance. It's just the, the abstract rich and the abstract poor. She is the prettiest princess in the world, right? She's not just really pretty in the world. It looks like a fairy tale, but then she does her figuring and she come out the other, comes out the other way. So the fairy tale for our time tells us that our time is not a time of fairy tales. But, and this to me is the most wonderful part of it, the moral says... All those who thought the princess was going to select the tin box filled with worthless stones instead of one of the other gifts. And that's us, right? Yep. We all know that's what's supposed to happen in a fairy tale, right? So what what the, the writer is saying is, ha, you're being trapped by fairy tales. You've mm-hmm. been trapped by fairy tales. If the world is not a fairy tale, maybe there's something wrong with fairy tales, how did it get that way? Mm-hmm. And the answer is in the second half of the, the moral. All those 
who thought this will kindly stay after class and write 100 times on the blackboard, I would rather have a hunk of aluminum silicate than a diamond necklace. In other words, it's school. Yep. School has miseducated us <laughs> to believe that fairy tales are where we should find our morals. And in fact, they are wrong. Those morals don't do a damn bit of good for the real world. And as you said, Jesse, when you were young and you started reading Aesop, you read the morals and you were already smart enough to disagree with most of them. I wanna I wanna uh go back just to talk about the five princes. Um it's it struck me I was making notes um that part of what they're selling is not the objects. Part of what they're selling is the provenance of the objects. And when we go through the list, uh, I'll just read it. The first prince to arrive at the palace rode a swift white stallion and laid at the feet of the princess an enormous apple made of solid gold, which he had taken from a dragon who had guarded it for a thousand years. Right? So it's the provenance there. It's part of the story of the object that he's giving her. Not just the valuable gold, but the fact that it lay at the feet of a dragon for a thousand years. Wow. Then the second prince, who came on a gray charger, brought her a nightingale made out of a thousand diamonds, and it was placed beside the golden apple. So that one's provenance is a little less exciting, right? The third one, the third prince riding a black horse, carried a great jeweled box made of platinum and sapphires, and it was placed to the diamond, uh, next to the diamond nightingale. So again, not much of a provenance there, right? But at least it's nice. The fourth prince, astride a fiery yellow horse, gave the princess a gigantic heart made of rubies and pierced by an emerald arrow. Uh, okay. It was placed next to the platinum and sapphire jewel box. Now we get the fifth prince. And his provenance is not the tin box full of worthless stones he found along the way, but the fact that not only is he handsome, but he's got this backstory. His kingdom had been overrun by mice and locusts and wizards and mining engineers, and now there was not much value left. He came plodding up on a, onto the palace on a plow horse. No color, right? And he brought a small tin box filled with mica and feldspar and hornblende, which he had picked up along the way. Uh, it turns out that provenance is not what she is thinking about. She's only thinking about, um, as she says... Uh, it is a very large and expensive box, and when I am married, I will have many admirers who will give me many more precious gems with which to fill the top, fill it to the top. Therefore, I will choose the third prince. <laughs> um, to me, you notice. I'm yeah, sorry. go for, no, go for it. Well, we have been conditioned to uh, accept these fairy tales as speaking to the real world by school. She has been conditioned to want things of monetary value by her upbringing. Right. And so what that does is undercut the notion that the strong, handsome person will win her. It will be love. And instead, she's counting on having admirers when she's married. (laughs) The whole institution that formalizes romance, you know, they they lived happily ever after. They get, you know, Rapunzel marries the prince. 
None of that happens here. Just the opposite. She's setting herself up for a lifetime of infidelity, but wealthy infidelity. Right. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, some of those ladies on the Upper East Side in New York are reading The New Yorker? <laughs> I think so. One way or the other, if they will just put down their martinis, I know I'm dealing in gross and, and inaccurate stereotypes, but bear with me as if it were a fairy tale. They'll find that there's always something more to say. Nice. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.